Last time we left off in Revelation 14, we were in verse 13, if you recall. And in that verse, the verse reminded us that for those who believe in Jesus Christ, there is a Sabbath rest. Now, for those who are outside of Jesus Christ, who are going to be worshiping the beast, there was no Sabbath rest. Now, just let me lay out what I'm going to be doing here in Revelation. In Revelation 14, we've been going kind of slow because Revelation 14 gives us a lot of background that is needed to understand the scriptures in their entirety. So that's why we're getting into things like Sabbath rest. Today we'll talk about the Son of Man. But when we get into Revelation 15 and 16, we'll accelerate the pace once again, and we'll, it'll culminate in the Battle of Armageddon. Chapter 17 through 18, you'll see the downfall of Babylon. Chapter 19 of Revelation, Jesus Christ comes. Chapter 20, we'll have the millennium, eternal damnation, the white throne judgment. Chapters 21 and 22, the eternal states. And so right now in chapter 14, the reason we're going slow is because all of this background information from all over the Bible is being tied together. So, oops, I almost knocked a recording device over. I've got to watch my hands. By the way, I talk that way with a phone, too. And nobody can see me, and I still talk that way. I don't know why. So, so remember last week, then, in Revelation 14, we talked about the Sabbath rest, and we talked about how there are four different views in Christendom today. Number one, some people believe that Sabbath on Saturday must still be observed. In fact, we're going to be going into a congregation sharing a building where they still believe that. Seventh-day Adventists believe that, okay? Now, of course, I don't think that that's correct, but let me just show you the other views. Sabbath on Sunday must still be observed. This is the Reformed tradition. So they just move Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And in some sense, the reason the Reformed tradition does that is they believe that the church is Israel. So if Israel's the church... Well, then they have to do what Israel does. So if Israel had Sabbath, we have Sabbath. Are you with me? So Israel had it on Saturday. We just move it to Sunday. The problem with that is every time Sabbath is mentioned in the New Testament, it's either referring to Sabbath rest in Christ, which I'll be showing you out of Hebrews, or it's referring to Saturday. Okay, so they don't have a leg to stand on. You know what? The, and I'm not saying these guys are right either, but the, the, the Seventh-day Adventists who say Saturday Sabbath, they have more going for their view than the Reformed tradition does for the Sunday Sabbath, although the Seventh-day Adventists are wrong as well, and there's more problems with their heretical views. I'll talk about that in the sermon today. But the third view is that Sabbath rest must still be observed, but you're free to do it on any day. Now, this sometimes is known as the Lutheran view, although Luther was actually more clear on this than I think many Lutheran theologians are today, although some Lutheran theologians would hold to the same view we have. Now, what's the view that I hold to and Bob DeWay and the elders here at Gospel of Grace? Well, that is Sabbath rest is found through faith in Christ. Now, this isn't revolutionary, or at least it should not be, because this is what the scriptures clearly teach, that the, the Sabbath on Saturday was a shadow of the rest that we ultimately have in Jesus Christ. And one of the passages that really proves this, as I showed you last time, is Colossians 2, 16 through 17. I like the Net Bible because it renders some of the language, I think, very precisely. Paul here says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of the things to come but the reality is Christ. And so remember last week we talked about the shadow versus the reality. So many things in the Old Covenant were a shadow, whether it be the sacrifices, whether it be the festivals, 
whether it be Sabbath keeping, whether it be the food. It was a shadow, but the reality is Jesus Christ. If you want to be ceremonially clean, you don't do it through eating the correct food. You do it by going to Christ. If you want Sabbath rest, it's not found on a day. It's ultimately found in Christ. If you want atonement, it's not found in the temple or in the sacrificial system. It's found where? It's found in Christ. And so the analogy, and I'll give this in the sermon again today, is let's say you went to buy a Ferrari and you set your hundred grand or whatever, I don't know what a Ferrari goes for, and the next week you come back to pick up your car and they say, well, you don't actually get the car, you get the shadow. Well, would you tolerate that? No. So why do people tolerate the shadow versus the substance or the reality when it comes to the most important thing in life, Jesus Christ? Dear one, Sabbath rest is found in him, and that's precisely what Revelation 14, 13 is saying. Those who belong to Antichrist and to sin in the world, they'll never have rest. But those who belong to Jesus Christ, the moment you believe, you've entered into his rest. And that rest will extend for all of eternity. Okay, let me give you some more evidence of this. So to, again, today, we're bogging down to talk about Sabbath rest. Again, when we get into Revelation 15 on, we're going to accelerate the pace again. But let's talk about Sabbath rest. First of all, to prove that Sabbath rest is found by faith in Christ, let's go to the book of Hebrews. Because the writer of Hebrews makes the explicit point that Sabbath rest is found in faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. Let me begin by showing you how the writer of Hebrews rebukes those who fell in the wilderness during the Exodus wanderings. And the reason they didn't enter into God's rest is because of unbelief. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews three eighteen through 19, it says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now stop there. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the wilderness wanderers, the Israelites, after they came out of Egypt. And they were disobedient to God. They went into idolatry. Remember, they built the golden calf right at Mount Sinai. They lived by sight, not by faith. They couldn't see Moses for five minutes. They built a golden calf, something they can see. Okay, they're idolaters through and through. So they were disobedient. But notice he says, but to those who are disobedient, then verse 19, he says, so we see that they were not able to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Remember, you always act on what you believe. So the Israelites didn't believe in Yahweh. They said, I think we had it better back in the land of Goshen. We had it better back in Egypt. Well, let's go back. Why? They didn't believe God and his promises that the promised land was something that they should persevere unto. Okay, so they fell because of unbelief. Well, now the writer of Hebrews is going to apply it to us. So, okay, that's happened to Israel. They fell because of unbelief. They didn't enter into his rest. Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, here's a conclusion. Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So, dear ones, how would you and I come short of having rest? Well, we would also be in unbelief, just as the Israelites. Notice the underlying portion. Yeah, Eric. Um, and then we really need to consider what belief means. Yes. Well said. Eric pointed out 
astutely, I'm just saying this again for the recorder, that in the Hebraic conception of faith, faith always leads to action. You're exactly right. And a good example of that is look at Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Paul, the apostle, labors in Romans 4 to show that's how every person is justified, by faith like Abraham. But isn't it interesting, James, he also cites Genesis 15, 6, but then he goes on to what? Genesis 22, where Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. And the argument he makes is faith without works is dead. Okay, now, James would be the first to tell you, yes, you're saved by faith. But what he's qualifying is what kind of faith saves. Well, the kind that leads to action. Because if you don't have action, it means you don't believe. (laughs) So the reason in Genesis 22, Abraham's willing to sacrifice his son is because he really believes. And that's why he was the first to even believe, as it were, in the resurrection. So you're absolutely right. True faith leads to obedience. And you see that here in spades, I think, in the book of Hebrews. So absolutely. So what I'm going to show you later in Hebrews, this rest is certainly a Sabbath rest. And it's not entered into because of unbelief. And therefore, it is entered into by belief. That's the issue. So let's keep reading in Hebrews. How does one enter into Sabbath rest? Well, it's by faith. It's by believing in Christ. Hebrews 4, 2 through 3. He says, For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. Now here's a citation from, from uh, Psalm 95, 11. He says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, notice here in verse 3, how do you enter into the rest? By belief. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ enter into that rest. Now, there's some complex arguments here that the writer of Hebrews is making. Let me try to unpack them a little bit. Isn't it interesting in verse 3, he says, for we who have believed enter that rest, isn't it interesting that right after that he cites Psalm 95, 11, notice in all caps, it says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, here's why this is curious to me. The writer of Hebrews has stated something positive in red. Does everyone see that? For we who have believed enter that rest. Well, then he says, just as he said. Notice the citation seems to be negative to support something positive. He says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, why would that be a positive thing to support the idea that if you believed, you do enter his rest? Well, I think the clarification comes. Notice you have a concessive idea. He says, although his, that's God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. Here is the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. It's very clever. He's saying to us that God's rest from creation didn't exhaust Sabbath rest. That's why he cites Genesis 95:11. Okay? The idea that you're going to see all through this passage is the term remains and the term today. So for example, in Hebrews 4:1, he said if while a promise remains of entering his rest. 
In Hebrews 4, 6, he says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter his rest. Twice he uses the term today. So his whole point in citing Psalm 95, 11, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, the design of it is to prove that there remained a rest, that God's work at creation and his resting from his creation didn't exhaust rest. Now, in the next section, you're going to see him make a similar argument. Israel's entering into the promised land didn't exhaust or fulfill Sabbath rest. Why? Why is that important? His point is there remains a Sabbath rest for all those who believe. Are you with me? So the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, when God rested from creation, that didn't exhaust his rest. When the Israelites went into the promised land, that didn't exhaust rest. Therefore, there must be a rest that remains for the people of God. How do you enter into it? It's by faith in the Messiah. Listen to how he continues in his argument. Hebrews 4, 6 through 9, he says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, very complex argument, but let's make it really simple. Notice the citation when he says in all caps today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What is that from? Well, that's from Psalm 95:11. Now, let's put our thinking caps on for a moment. When David writes Psalm 95, 11, that's around 1,000 B.C., correct? Now, when did Joshua bring the Israelites into the Promised Land? Around 1440 or 1405 B.C., right in there? So some 400 years before. Well, notice he makes the argument, for if Joshua had given them rest, David wouldn't have spoken of another day after that. So David is talking about a rest 400 years after Joshua brings the Israelites into the promised land. So obviously going into the promised land didn't exhaust God's rest. Why else would David speak of rest still existing? And so the grand point is rest was never exhausted at creation. It was never to be exhausted in going into Israel, the promised land. It's exhausted and fulfilled by coming to Jesus Christ in faith. Because no matter where you are, no matter what circumstance you're in, if you are found in Jesus Christ, you have rest with God. And yes, you will be a partaker of a kingdom that's really coming to Israel and the world and the eternal states. But the only way to enter that rest isn't by observing a day. It's not by being in a geographical location. It's by coming to Jesus Christ by faith. And what I love is the fact that the writer of Hebrews is so astute that he picks up on the work of Joshua. Joshua is, in a sense, a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus. He does what Jesus does, but to a much lesser extent. Many of you maybe don't realize, but Joshua's name, Yeshua, is the same in Hebrew as Jesus' name, Yeshua. It's the same name. If you look at it, you're like, well, what are they talking about, Joshua, Joshua or Jesus? The answer is yes, because Jesus, Joshua, in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing 
of Jesus in the New Testament. Let me show you a chart that I think aptly points this out. Think about Joshua in the Old Testament. His name is Yeshua, Yahweh saves. And then think about Jesus in the New Testament. Again, his name means Yahweh saves. Think about Joshua in the Old Testament. He was uniquely faithful in his day, wasn't he? Yes, Caleb also with him believed the promises of God. But he was unique with Caleb in the unbelieving generation. They believed the promises of God. Now, compare that to Jesus Christ. He is uniquely faithful for all time. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He is the faithful one par excellence. Nobody was like him. Notice that Joshua in the Old Testament subdues some of God's enemies. Remember the little thing about Jericho? Strike up the band, march around seven times. What does God do? Wipes them all out. He wipes out God's enemies. He pursues them, ironically, to where? Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, where the Nephilim came. He pursues God's enemies and he smites them. But who ultimately is going to subdue all of God's enemies? The greater Joshua the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just subdue some of the enemies and leave some. When he comes at his parousia and power, he'll get them all. This is the most powerful warrior the world has ever known. Yahweh is his name. The Lord Jesus Christ isn't some cosmic cream puff. He's the most powerful warrior, but yet the most tender savior. And so he does ultimately what Joshua could never do. The Joshua in the Old Testament brings people into a promised land. The Lord Jesus, the greater Joshua, brings us into the promised land. Isn't that beautiful? Joshua gave God's people an imperfect rest in the land, still having to fight, still having to struggle, still struggling with sin. But the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to give his people perfect rest. When the writer of Hebrews makes the astute point that Joshua didn't exhaust Sabbath rest, he's driving us to the exquisite point of where it is exhausted, where it is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by faith. You cannot be any more clear in any passage in Scripture that Sabbath rest is found through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, period. And so if we are going to... Yes, Brian. No, go ahead. I could use a drink anyway. Thank you. Uh, the Sabbath rest, entering the Sabbath rest, would be the same as uh, 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 going from the realm of darkness to light. Same type thing. Exactly. And David came up in the uh, Hebrews 4, 6 through 9... And I've always wondered, David had, was being led by God, okay? They had the faith to face Goliath. At that time, it was like Saul was being used through the Holy Spirit by God. But then as David ascended, you see Saul descend. So my question then is, was Saul falsely believing that he had entered a Sabbath rest or gone from darkness to light? Because it seems like a backslide. It seems, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, I think in the case of Saul, we certainly see an indication within First and Second Samuel 
that he is one who the people choose, but they choose based not on what God sees, but on what humans see. He's taller. He's the most physically fit. But the Lord's spirit comes upon him. He's the chosen one of Israel. He has to be respected because he's the king of Israel. However, he ends up living and showing his true colors. The ultimate anointed one was David. And David is God's chosen, not based on height, but based on the heart. And so David comes as the foreshadowing of the greater Davidic king who will one day come. Again, chosen because of faithfulness. And so I think that that's the contrast. So to me, what we see in Saul is in the outward appearance, he seems okay, but his life ends up showing that he really doesn't believe, that he really is part of the disobedient generation. In fact, he ends up conjuring up, remember the the dead? the wicked uh, witch of the, the Easter, <laughs> uh, Endor, I think is what it's called. I'm using the, but you know what I'm saying? He ends up conjuring up the dead. Well, that's as evil as it can be. Necromancy is engaged in trying to get secret information. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever, but the things that he has not revealed belong to the Lord alone. Well, Saul tries to get secret information. He's engaged in divination. That shows his true colors. He doesn't really believe. But David, even though he sins, he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man who believes in the promises of God. And so, yes, he is certainly God's chosen. So I see it as Saul lives out his true colors. He never left darkness. It seemed that he may have been in the light, but his later life shows he was always in the darkness. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, Norm. Um, so, so we believe that the Sabbath rest is in, is in Christ. And the other view, some other views, it's, they believe that it's a certain day, whether it's Sunday yes. or Saturday or whatever. And part of that belief then oftentimes carries with it the feeling that I need to go to church on that day, I need to assemble with the saints and do those things. Yeah. I see one of the tendencies maybe in looking at it the way we do is people kind of get the idea that Getting together, assembling is an optional thing. Very good point. When we go to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it talks about, you know... Not forsaking the assembly. Yes. Assembling together and so forth. So right. Great point. Yeah, Norm, let me cite this for the... I, I'm sorry, I forgot to do it in your case, Brian. The, the, the question that Norm is throwing out there, the comment, is we run the risk as believing that Sabbath rest is found in Christ, which is certainly taught in the Scriptures as being those who would neglect assembling together as we're called to do in Hebrews 10.25. So here's the category distinctions that I think we have to make. On the one hand, we're not bound to any day. In other words, if we don't show up on Sunday, we're not sinning. We don't have to abide by a certain day. However, what we have to do is assemble together. So if you go years and years and never go to church, you're violating what the scriptures say. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling together as some are prone to do. We are to do that. It's just that that would be divorced from the idea of Sabbath per se. So that's what I want to do is show a distinction between Sabbath and the assembly. Sabbath rest is every day, every moment for those in Jesus Christ. But the assembling together, we are called to do that because in the assembling together, you have the dispensing of the means of grace. Acts 2.41 or 240, is it 242? Sorry, 241 is the verse before. 242. Okay? So in 242, remember you have those four things. You have the assembling together. 
you have the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper. You have the um, teaching of the, the Word of God, the apostles' teaching. What did I miss? Prayer. prayer. You have prayer. Thank you. So you have those four means. Now, what's interesting is someone might say, well, that's only descriptive of what the early church did. However, those things are prescribed elsewhere for the church. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. That's a command. Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the assembling together, some are prone to do. We, are, we see the command to preach the word in season and out of season. That faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That's the proclamation of the word. It's a command. And what was the last one? I got prayer. Oh, Lord's Supper. Yes. Thank you. I'm so glad you guys are here. First Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11. Paul says, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what Jesus says. Implied in as often as you do this is you must do this. Okay? So let's ask the question, where in the world is walking a labyrinth commanded? Where is the promise? What about going into yoga? or an altered state of consciousness? Where is the command for these things? What about going into the wilderness to get away from it all? A lot of Christians go on retreats where they go away to build their spiritual formation, they'll say. Well, where in Scripture are we called to go to the wilderness? Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, but he had a sinless nature. You and I go into the wilderness, we have a sinful nature, and we bring it with us. So the sin isn't here or here or here. The sin's here. So if I go into the wilderness to get away from it, I can't get away from me. So that's a case where Jesus did something that we're not called to do. Jesus does a lot of things that we're not called to do. He walked on water. Do you see anywhere where we're called to walk on water? I've tried when I water skied a few times. My skis came off. It doesn't work well. (laughs) Dear ones, we're to do what the Lord has called us to do. And so Norm's exactly right. That's the distinction. We are called to assemble, but Sabbath rest is found in Christ. And we have to see a distinction between the two. Are you with me? So don't forsake the assembling and think, you know what, Sabbath rest is found in Christ. No, we're violating another command altogether. Okay? So we must assemble together, but Sabbath rest is found in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Very good point. Excellent. So, well, with that, um, let me go to my next PowerPoint. We're done with this one, and we're going to move on now into verses 14 through 20. And let me just pull this up here. You know, I had my computer all arranged, and then I shut it down thinking it would leave that. Nope. (laughs) I got icons all over the place now. So let me pull this up here. All right. Get this set up. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. This is part one. And it may be, there may be a part three. I'm not sure how long, but we'll at least have part two. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. We're going to be looking at the coming rule of the Son of Man. Now, remember, in Revelations chapter 12 through 14, those chapters that we've been in are giving us background information to the bulls of wrath. And so it's God's way of saying, oh, by the way, all of this has happened and will happen as well. So that's why we're taking our time to get into all the background information now, because that's what... Did that move or am I seeing things? Okay, good. (laughs) I was hoping it didn't move. Um, We want to get into all the background information now. So today, what we're going to do in verses 14 through 20 is we're going to see how the Son of Man 
is coming in wrath. Now, this brings up three big issues. Number one, we're going to look at what, why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? That is Jesus' favorite self-designation. Second, we're going to look at how the Son of Man and this idea of him riding on the clouds in Revelation 14 ties in to the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse is going to drive us to better understand both the narrow day of the Lord and something called the broad day of the Lord. So I want you to think of these next messages as a way that we can gather all the data together and better understand why Jesus is the Son of Man. We can better understand the Olivet Discourse and the day of the Lord. That's my goal. So I want to begin by reading here verse 14 where we see the Son of Man riding on the clouds. Notice it says, Revelation 14, 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, what's interesting here is the description that he is like the son of man. He's sitting on the cloud. And some scholars will try to claim to you that this must be an angel. The reason they will say that this must be an angel is because in the very next verse, it'll say another angel did this. And then the angel commanded him to put his sickle in and reap. No, dear ones, clearly, because John has alluded to Jesus as the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1, the Son of Man is the Messiah. And specifically, he must be the Messiah because he is the one who's depicted in Daniel chapter 7 as sitting on a cloud, the clouds of glory, and he is compared to the Son of Man. Now, the question that that raises is why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? In fact, it's his favorite self-designation. He uses it 89 times in the Gospels. 89 times Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. Now, if you and I were to pick a title for him, we'd probably pick Son of God, something that accentuates his deity. Okay, But what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you that the Son of Man does. The Son of Man accentuates two things. Number one, it accentuates his right to rule. Number two, it accentuates that he is the representative. So rule and representation is behind his designation, Son of Man. And the primary referent that we have to look to is the book of Daniel chapter 7. So please turn your Bibles, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. Verses 7 through 14. And what we'll, we'll do is we'll read this and we'll unpack a little bit of the significance of it. And then we'll apply it to the passage here. So certainly, this is what is in the background behind Revelation 14, 14. Now, as you're turning to Daniel 7, verses 7 through 14, remember the year here is about 553 B.C. Daniel probably would have been about 67 years old. He was deported from Israel to Babylon in 605 B.C. Remember, there was a sequence of deportations. So he's about 67 years old when he sees this vision. He calls it a night vision. I hate when I have night visions. <laughs> Usually means I have a fever or something's wrong with me. But he has visions that are from the Lord. And in that vision, remember, he sees four kingdoms. And so he sees them in the beast, but then he describes what the beasts represent. The first kingdom that looked like a lion and an eagle. Remember that? And that represented Babylon. He just tells you. Well, the second uh, creature that he sees is a bear. That's the Medo-Persian Empire that comes after. 
Well, then he sees Greece that looks like a leopard because of the swiftness of Alexander the Great and his army. Well, then he sees the fourth beast, and that beast is unique. It's a terrifying beast. It's not a liken to an animal. It's a terrifying beast, and it has ten horns. Lo and behold, those are the ten horns that we see in Revelation 17. So the final beast is Rome, but this offshoot of Rome, the ten horns, is going to be the kingdom of the Antichrist. Well, after those ten horns, three are going to be uprooted. One little sneaky horn comes up. He's the Antichrist. Well, after that, he's going to be thrown down, and you're going to see a messianic kingdom come that will be without end. That's all in Daniel's vision. That's quite a vision. He's he's giving the whole scope of history. And this is why Jesus is connecting his designation, Son of Man, to Daniel 7. Because Daniel 7 is a messianic passage. Daniel 7, verses 7 through 14. So here's Daniel. He picks it up now. He says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. So this is the Roman Empire. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Stop there. That is going to be alluded to again in Revelation 17, 12. Because those ten horns are the ten kings that arise with the beast. By the way, do you remember when Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse, in the very beginning, the first sign he gives within the 70th week is there will be false Christs? I would take that these ten beasts or ten kings are also false Christs. And who arises from the midst of them is the Antichrist. So that's how I would liken Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse to Revelation. The multitude, the ten, arise with the Antichrist, and therefore it's fair for Jesus to say it begins with false Christ. There will be many false Christs, but don't listen to them. Okay? So he keeps going now in verse 8. He says, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn. Now here's the Antichrist, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Where did we see the uttering of great boasts? Revelation 13, 5. The Antichrist, the beast in Revelation, is uttering great boasts. We see the same thing in the book of 2 Thessalonians. That the Antichrist will set himself in the temple of God and declare himself to be God. Now that's quite a boast, isn't it? Now, why is it important to see those connections? Because when the Apostle Paul says that, you can't claim that it's going to be fulfilled, this beast, in Antiochus Epiphanes IV in the 167 B.C. era. Are you with me? Many people try to claim, oh, this beast was just Antiochus Epiphanes IV. That all happened in 167 B.C. Oh, yeah? Well, why is Paul teaching it in the first century? It can't be fulfilled then in Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Okay, so now notice in verse 9. I'm going to scroll down here. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, here's God the Father, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Now listen to the angelic description. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. 
Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, here's the beast, the Antichrist, was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. That's what we're reading about in Revelation. And its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. We'll talk about that in Revelation. Verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there's the clouds reference, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now stop there for just a moment. If you're a Hebrew reader, this is shocking. And the reason this is shocking, I want to turn your attention to Job. In Job chapter 1, who was it that presented themselves before Yahweh? It was the sons of God. The sons of God does not mean that they're little gods, that we have a plurality of gods. The sons of God designation has to do with the residence in which the angels dwell. They dwell in the same arena, the unseen arena, arena as Yahweh does. So the sons of God are those who reside in the unseen realm around the throne of the king, the true God, the eternal one. And they reside there. And so as the Hebrew person is reading this, all of a sudden they expect to see a son of God come, but they would never expect a son of man. Where in the world did the son of man? This isn't even congruent. A son of man should dwell on the earth not be in the throne room of God. Remember, son of really designates characterized by. The son of perdition is one who's characterized by perdition. Son of means you're characterized by. A son of man is one who is characterized as a man. He's characterized by being a man. A son of God has to do with one who is in the same realm as Yahweh. So what's so shocking here is a son of man comes. And the reason I think that it's intended is because this is showing us a foreshadowing of what we would refer to as the hypostatic union. That, in fact, God will one day become man, and he has to do so because we need a new representative, a representative who's really a man, but who's also truly God, who will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Yes, Luann? I'm just wondering how the Hebrews would have yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, that would be congruous to them, I think, because here you have a man who is a prophet. He's characterized by men. And I would say that that is a referent that refers to his, his humanness. Okay, so that would certainly not have any messianic implications. It would simply show that there is a man who speaks for God. His name is Ezekiel. And he's being selected by God as a representative. But here, the unique thing is that this son of man is going to be in the throne room of God, and he's going to be given dominion forever and ever, something that only God has. He comes riding on the clouds of glory, something that only God does, and he is given the very authority of God. And so this would be, it would be just shattering. They would think that Daniel made a mistake. He must have eaten the wrong pizza that night. A son of man? In the throne room of God, he has dominion forever. Who is this? That's what have been so shocking. Now, yeah, Lonnie. Well, then, could you say that the Son of Man is like God in the flesh, John 
114? Exactly. That's what I think it's driving us to. I think it's driving us to that expectation. You would expect to see a, a B'nai Elohim, the sons of God there, but a Bain Adam, the son of Adam, a son of man? This is shocking. So remember in the Hebrew, this is, by the way, in Aramaic. From chapters 2 to chapter 7 is all in Aramaic. But in Hebrew, that's how they would understand it. A Ben Adam. Ben is son. Adam is Adam or man. So it's a son of Adam. And that would be, I think, very shocking. Now, notice in verse 14 what's given to him. It says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Stop there. In the scriptures, who is the one who is to be served? Every knee will bow and confess that Yahweh is Lord in the book of Isaiah. Well, here, it's attributed to whom? It's attributed to the Son of Man. He's going to be worshipped like God, and yet he's characterized as a man. It says that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So again, brothers and sisters, right there in Daniel 7, it highlights how the Son of Man will reign. Why does he reign? Because he's God. Only God reigns forever and ever. That's the Son of Man. It's a messianic title. It shows his divinity. But it also accentuates the fact that he's a representative. I want to show you elsewhere where this phrase Son of Man is used. It's very infrequent. Psalm 80, Psalm 8, Ezekiel, as Luann pointed out, Daniel 7. That's it. So let me show you, very interesting, something that David wrote in Psalm 8. And by the way, this is applied by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. Psalm 8, 4 through 6. I think this refers to the representation of the Son of Man. Psalm 8, 4 through 6. It says, What is man that you should take thought of him? The Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now stop there for just a moment. David here, as he's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I think really is writing of man. He's writing of and really extolling the virtue of God and how kind God has been to, to us, to mankind. God has blessed us. God has given us grace and mercy. But what's so interesting is notice here in verse 6, he says, you make him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Right there, what that should bring our minds to is in Genesis 1, through 28, wasn't Adam man commanded by God to rule in his place over the beasts of the air? the beasts of the ground and every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth? Yes. We were to rule over everything in a righteous way as God's vice regents. But what happens? Yes, Mike. Oh, I would just point out also, uh, interrupting you of your uh, sentence, but verse 5 says, you have made him a little lower than God. Well, all the people, three persons of the Trinity are equal, co-equal. So just the fact that he says made him a little lower than God definitely refers, can't be Jesus. Can't be the well person. said. Yeah. Exactly. Astute reading. Free coffee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mike Kaufman just pointed out that in Psalm 8.5, it says, you have made him a little lower than God. 
indicating that this isn't God, it can't be a member of the Trinity, therefore it has to be applied to man. Exactly right. So that ties into why does the writer of Hebrews cite this when he applies it to Jesus? Now, what's interesting is the way the writer of Hebrews applies it to Jesus, he is not saying this is a reference to Jesus, but what he's saying is that Jesus fulfills this vocation. Let me read to you what William Lane says, the great scholar in the book of Hebrews. He says, quote, The writer of Hebrews did not find a Christological title in the designation. He cites Psalm 8.5, because he wishes to emphasize that Jesus, in a representative sense, fulfilled the vocation intended for humankind. You see, you and I, as Adam, as man, mankind, men and women, we are to rule in a righteous way. We failed miserably. So what's the expectation? Well, someone is going to have to come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So ultimately, the Son of Man is presented before the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory. Why? Because he's God and he's man, and he, as the God-man, is going to have to do this. In verse 6, this is his vocation. He will rule over the works of God's hands, and all things will be put under his feet. Dear ones, thank you so much. What passage in the Old Testament is quoted more often than any other in the New Exactly, Psalm 110.1. What does Psalm 110.1 say? Psalm 110.1 says, My Yahweh, or Yahweh, made an utterance. This is literally in the Hebrew. Yahweh made an utterance to my Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. The idea of Psalm 110.1 is that the Messiah, who's God, he's Adonai, he is going to put all things under his feet. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Yes, mankind was... De- God had two domains of rule. The unseen realm, he created angels. They rebelled. Well, that rebellion went to the other realm, the seen realm on earth. And that caused the rebellion of the angelic realm. The temptation at the Garden of Eden caused the rebellion in the seen realm on the earth. And so now God, in a sense, has lost the domain in both. Not literally, I mean, he still reigns. But the idea is the angels rebelled against him, a third, and you have mankind. So he's going to reestablish the rule in the seen realm and the earth through the Son of Man. And I think that's one of the reasons why he picks up on this. Yes, Lynn. Kind of summed up, you know, how they, uh, they would have seen it in the New Testament church would be like Philippians 2, 6-11. Yes. Exactly. Although being in the form of God, don't equate himself to be God, something is to be grasped, but he humbled himself, became a man, put himself in the subjection of men on the cross. And we're, by the way, to have the same mindset, to have humility. Right. So in that Philippians 2, when it says that he emptied himself, kenosis, it doesn't mean that he emptied his divine attributes, but he humbled himself, even though he was God, to become a man. So if you humble yourself, you don't become less human. Just because he humbled himself, it didn't mean that he became less God. But he took on flesh to represent us. And that's exactly in keeping with the idea of the Son of Man. So realize, dear ones, in Daniel 7, you have the pregnant idea there that will be later fleshed out in the Gospels, the idea of the God-man. Truly God, truly man, and one person who will do for humanity what we couldn't do for ourselves. And what's amazing is you see so many passages in the New Testament where this idea of all things will be under his feet that you see in Psalm 110.1, that you see here. Let me give you some examples. 
Think about 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27. For he, referring to Jesus, must reign until what? Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him, that namely God. Okay, so notice that language again in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection. Christ is the one who puts all things under his feet. As the Son of Man, he is going to rule as mankind never could. We failed, but he succeeded. Let me show you another example. In Ephesians 1, 21 through 22, he's depicted as far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Notice how many times Psalm 8 and Psalm 110.1 are being alluded to. This idea of the Messiah, the Son of Man, having all things under his feet was supposed to be something we did, but we failed, but he succeeds. And that's why I think the Son of Man is the most popular designation that Jesus gives to himself. It accentuates the fact that he's the Messiah, he reigns, but also accentuates the fact that he's our representative, that he does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now, with that, are there any questions or comments, ideas? The, yeah. Mike. Just to be clear, yeah. they go back and forth and forth, and it is God who puts things under subjection. Under the feet of Jesus. Amen. Okay, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah. I get confused back and forth. You know, if, if, is it Christ or is it God that puts yeah. under subjection? But it's it is no. God. Yeah. Amen. Well said. And yeah. what's so neat about that Psalm one ten one that is so often talked about in the New Testament is when you read it in Hebrew, it's really shocking because you see Yahweh. And this is David writing this. He makes a statement to my Adonai. Now, in Hebrew, there's called a third-person masculine singular pronominal suffix. The, the, the suffix on the ending of the word Adonai, there's a suffix on the end that shows it belongs to the speaker. In other words, there's a relationship. It's my Adonai. Well, David is the king of Israel. And as such, he's the most powerful lord on the planet to the people of God. Are you with me? So if he's the Lord of David, well, he has to be God. And so in Psalm 110.1, you're really seeing Trinitarian communication. You're seeing the Father speak to the Son. And that's why the Pharisees, as Jesus gives them the conundrum, whose son is the Messiah? Well, they say, well, he's the son of David. Well, then he cites Psalm 110.1. He says, well, how now, brown cow? How can this Messiah be the Lord of David and yet David's son. What is Jesus driving at? He's driving at the God-man. It's huge. He's driving at passages like Daniel chapter 7. And what we have to do is realize that this is something that wasn't foreign to the Old Testament. It was there. So what's pregnant in the Old Testament, the idea of the God-man reigning, is flushed out and fulfilled in the New and I think that that's why Jesus keeps using the self-designation. There may be another reason why Jesus uses Son of Man. Again, 89 times in the Gospels, if he just came out and said, look, I'm the Messiah, you all repent or die. Well, it wouldn't have gone well. 
So, okay, let me give you an example. Do you remember in Matthew 13, Jesus speaks in parables? But when he speaks in a parable, he pulls his disciples aside and he tells them everything plainly. This is what the parable means. Do you remember they ask him, well, why do you tell us plainly, but you give everything in parables? Well, he says, because to you it's been granted the knowledge of the kingdom of God. To them it's not been granted. And so what God does, because of the hardness of man's heart, is he cloaks the messianic identity of Christ. Again, if Christ just came out and said, I'm the Messiah, you all repent or you die, they would be going after him with pitchforks and swords right away, and he'd wipe them out. So in a sense, it's judgment, but in a sense, it's also mercy, that he doesn't just reveal himself outright until the time. Okay, now, what's interesting is, let me back up one. I have a, let me write, read something to you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Mark 14. I want to leave with this. I just want to begin this new section because we get into a whole new Bollywick here. Mark 14, 61 through 62. I want you to see that Jesus himself uses this term, son of man, and it's tied certainly to Daniel 7 in his right to rule. Mark 14, notice in verse 61 through 62. Here Jesus is before the high priest. And it says, but he remains silent. This is Jesus. This is Mark 14, 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? So here's the, he's asking, are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed? Now stop there. Why does he say son of the blessed? Because the Jews won't use God, right? They won't use his name. They think that that's violating the third commandment. So are you the son of the blessed? Notice Jesus' response, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus links himself right away to Daniel chapter 7, clearly revealing his messianic credentials, but in a sense, in an opaque way, a passage that wasn't understood, a passage that would have been somewhat ambiguous to this high priest, not understanding that the one in Daniel 7 was the God-man. And so, yes, he affirms right there his Christological credentials. Jesus is the Messiah, and the proof of it, Daniel 7, son of man riding on the clouds. Brothers and sisters, there's no doubt about it that that Daniel 7 reference is a messianic reference. It means he has the right to rule, and he's a representative. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I hear um, there's also, there's, for sure God is three, but then for sure God is also one. So Comparing the two often, I you know I go all the way one way, and I'm thinking, oh wait a second, what's this passage over here? You know, talking about his oneness and talking about how he is the same as the spirit. And so it's like I think that passage about the I am is one of my favorite ones because it says, you know, I am. When Moses says, who should I tell them to, to say that you are? He says, I am who I am. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's God's way of saying my ways, you know, are above your ways. Mm-hmm. We can only believe what He's given us even though we can't understand it's necessarily its fullness of how you can be a perfect one, yet he can also yeah. show himself as three. Yeah. Yeah, let's handle that a little bit. Let's talk about this idea that God is one in essence, but three in persons. Now, this is not a contradiction. A contradiction would be saying 
Did that move again? Oh, okay, okay. No, no, that's fine. I just thought, I, I thought for sure I saw it move that one. <laughs> but I'm really losing it. I got to get different medication. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. So a contradiction, a true contradiction would say that he's one God and three gods at the same time in the same relationship. But the scripture doesn't teach that. What the, t- what the scripture is teaching is that he's one God in three persons. And all three persons are equally in the essence of God. Three different persons, but all equally God. So we have, now this is an analogy that doesn't fully work because nothing does because God is unique, okay? But bear with me. We have one government in three branches, okay? Now, if someone were to say, well, wait a minute, you have one government in three governments? We would say no. We have one government with three branches. And if they say, well, wait a minute, you're saying that the judicial branch is government? We say, yes, it's really government. Well, what about the executive branch? Really government. And they say, well, what about the legislative branch? Really government. But three different branches, one government. Does that make sense? In the same way, each member of the Trinity is fully God. Okay? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three different persons, all truly God, but we also have one Godhead. Not a contradiction, one God, three persons. It would be a contradiction to say we have one God and three gods. Does that make sense? So that's something you want to keep in your pocket for the Muslims because they will try to claim that the Trinity is a contradiction. So what would you say about passages where it says, you know, I and the Father are one, or where Jesus says, you know, I yeah. will be with you always, and then he's talking about the Spirit? Sure. Absolutely. So that's actually a great Trinitarian reference. He and the Father are one in essence, aren't they? In other words, there's no division each equally God, each having the same attributes as God, omnipotence, omniscience, all of the attributes that the Father has, Jesus has, yet different people. Um, If I said me and Mike are one, I would be accentuating the fact, and and Steve and our other elder, wherever he is, I wouldn't be saying that we're the same person. I would say that we're one in spirit, we're one in purpose, we're one in that sense, not that we're one in the same person. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says, I am the Father, remember we have the, think about the baptism of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ. You have the Father in heaven saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. You have a subject-object distinction, the Father and the Son. And then you have the Holy Spirit. So all three members of the Trinity, all distinct and all yet equally God. Does that help? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so if you could clarify that being how that's different from modalism. Yes, thank you. Um, modalistic monarchianism, um, it's also called Sibelianism. Sibelius was a heretic, and what he did is he basically said that there's one God who just changes costumes. Sometimes he has the Father costume on, and sometimes he puts the Son costume on, and sometimes he puts the Holy Spirit costume on. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches, in fact, in John 1 1. John 1 1, someday I've diagrammed this before numerous times, people yawn at it, but I've done it because in John 1 1, the grammar is so precise that it eliminates both Sabellianism, modalistic monarchianism, and it also eliminates Arianism, that Jesus isn't God. John 1 1 shows us that Jesus has the very quality of the Father. He's God, but he's not the Father, he's a different person. In John 1 1, I'll, I'll diagram this sometime again. It's so precise that it eliminates the fact that Jesus isn't the Father, but it also shows you that he must be God. 
Okay, so you're right. Modalistic monarchianism, that's what oneness Pentecostals hold on to. They say we have one God who just changes costumes. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. That's not true. And the baptism of Christ is a good place to go because you see all three members of the Trinity present right there. Yeah, thanks for the question. Okay, well, we're out of time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can look at these great doctrines and look at the profundity of the Son of Man. We long for the day that he does come and reign forever. I do pray now for Bob and his healing, for Milford, for Linda Berkness as she's hurting, uh, for little Will, and for all those who are here. We pray for our move next week. I pray for all those who are working so hard. I pray for stamina. I pray for each one here, Lord, that we would continue to be about your business, learning your word, proclaiming your excellencies among the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.